to Season 1, Episode 4. Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to Let's Talk Shop. I want to start off by thanking everyone who listened to the first three episodes and who supported me and the podcast and got it to number 29 on the business charts. I really didn't know what to expect and I'm so happy and thankful for all of your help spreading the word and for your messages. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Therese and I'm a business mentor who specialises in helping small businesses grow their wholesale. I believe that knowledge leads to confidence and that is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast. I hope that I will shed some light on the behind the scenes of the retail industry. I loved recording Let's Talk Shop and the conversations I've had so far and I would love to see where you are tuning in so post and share over on Instagram and tag me on at small underscore business underscore collaborative and help others discover the podcast too. This week I talked to Beth from Vinegar Hill. Vinegar Hill is a family owned business with 11 stores and I really love Beth's enthusiasm and passion for the industry and I'm sure that you will pick up lots of tips from this episode. Hello Beth, welcome to Let's Talk Shop. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is this is really interesting and it's a nice thing to be a part of. Thank you. I really look forward to chatting. So I sold to you when I worked at a book publisher, I think was the first time. Yeah, that's right. You have now grown to have, is it 11 stores? It's 11 stores. So we have got um, one store is a mix of fashion and lifestyle. Nine stores are standalone lifestyle. And then we've got two standalone fashion stores. Oh, wow. I didn't know that you had the fashion stores completely fashion. Completely fashion. That tends to be my sister's area of the business. So she does the buying for fashion. And then we both do a little bit of the fashion accessories and the crossover areas that might sit in both stores. We will often do that together. So tell us a little bit about you and Vinegar Hill and how it's kind of grown over the years. Okay, well, my background actually was interior design and decorating, which I did for a number of years. And I sort of enjoyed it, but it wasn't as fulfilling as I would have liked. So I decided, I think in my late 20s, to pack my bags and go off backpacking. And um, I spent a fair bit of time in New Zealand and Australia. And I did find some of their stores really inspiring, some of their homeware stores. So it got me thinking really about having a store, not, not offering all that service of curtain making and interior design, but just more, much more retailing. Uh, so you were still working with lovely product, and, but you were having a much more diverse range of homewares. So ceramics and soft furnishings, and, and, and obviously then you can expand into giftware and, and all sorts of other departments. And, um, and so that really got me thinking. And the name Vinegar Hill, which we always get asked about, actually does come from New Zealand. So I did see a little road sign in the South Island pointing to Vinegar Hill. I never actually got there. I loved the name and I loved the idea that actually it didn't really tell you anything. It was just a very memorable name. So that really was the acorn for the, you know, the start of the business. I love that. I didn't know that about the name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so then you got home and what, what did you do then? Got home and then I really had to start planning and sorting myself out. And I think, I mean, obviously, too, the, the two most important things were 
creating uh, your brand, uh, deciding on what how you were going to look and the feel of the of the store. Obviously, I had to find a very. I took a very very small unit in Stratford upon Avon. That was our first shop, and then really had to uh, start tracking down trade shows and and attending them. And that actually, as a new starter, was quite daunting because there's a huge array of choice at those shows. And obviously the options for you as a buyer are huge, but you do get a lot of, you know, companies wanting quite big orders, quite big commitment. And as a small startup business, you, you just can't do that. You want to try things. You want to have not too much of a commitment and get it into your store and just see, see how it goes for you. So, it, you know, there's a lot to do when you start up as a, as a small ind- independent retailer. Yeah, it must have been. It's also, I guess, quite daunting to walk up to all these big stands and be like, "Oh, are you opening a store?" Yeah, yeah, and 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 you you sometimes you want to look and be a little bit anonymous on a stand. Mm. You don't always want to be pounced on straight away. You want to have a look and, and and think, "Is this me? Do I want to ask more questions? Do I maybe just want to go and think about it?" I mean, obviously, over the years you become more confident, but I still think there's a, an element of. Always on my first day to trade show, I just like to have a good look. I like to just get into that zone because you're often looking for the new season and you're still in the old season, as it were, and you need to just see what the trends are, see what's there, get your head around what you're looking for. And then, I mean, we always give ourselves lots of time at these shows, but you need to then perhaps come back on day two and then really start to talk to people about, you know, all the information that you need. Yeah, I find that from coming from the other side, I find that, you know, if we kind of pound some people, if you will, we scare people away. Just smiling and saying, you know, if you need any help, I'm here is usually better than trying to start off with a conversation. Absolutely. It is just like you are when you walk into a shop. You need maybe just to be acknowledged, and I'm here if you need any help, just ask me. But it's when somebody kind of follows you around the stand and, and, and they're very persistent, and you're like, no, no. So I think you're right. It's just having that happy balance, isn't it, when you go on and you have a look at the very beginning? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's hard, both as someone, you know, if you're a new business exhibiting and I suppose as a buyer to get that kind of balance because you don't want you you only have so much time when you walk around the shows too so you can't chat with absolutely everyone Uh, this is the thing and I think sometimes you also don't want too much information at the beginning you know you are still making your decisions and I think perhaps certainly we don't do any orders at the shows very very rarely we come back we review our product information we review what we've seen and then I think you then start to pursue, you know, perhaps more information as and when you need it. Um, but I think it's, you just get the basic bits that you need to, to, to help you make that decision on the stand. But a lot of the, the, the sort of the more detailed bits and pieces you then probably pursue once you're back in the office. Yeah. And so in terms of when you started, when did your sister come on board and uh, how did you go from one shop to more? Yes, so we had. I had a very small little shop in Stratford-upon-Avon. And ironically, my sister next door had got a sandwich shop and a cafe. And again, it was all a little bit inspired from our travels. But she then, uh, we knocked through. So people could walk through from the coffee shop into my my side of the business. And that was lovely. But after two or three years, it got a little bit frustrating because I just wanted more space and I wanted to be able to do more. There was an opportunity of taking a much bigger premises further down the road and it was probably oh eight to ten times bigger than what I so it was a big it was quite a big step and at that 
I think my sister was like, you know, I'm happy to get on hospitality and, and, you know, come on board. So we took that first big shot on together. And, um, and it was kind of good to have that, that, that sort of partner there, that sort of extra support really, because suddenly you're making considerable decisions about everything. And it's just really invaluable to have somebody that you can bounce ideas off really. And it's just so much more money that you have to have so much more stock as and everything absolutely yeah it is you know and it, it's a considerable investment that you make so um it was uh yeah it was a big step for, for for the business definitely and then where did you open after that how did you decide okay so the second shop was up in shrewsbury and we had a few connections up there um and this this opportunity came up so uh, we went up to Shrewsbury, the rent was good, it was a lovely market town, it was an hour and a half from Stratford, so it was kind of manageable, and there was nobody really doing what we were doing there, so so that, uh, you know, that was a good opportunity for us. Yeah, and throughout, you open more stores, but your stores are still, you know, they all have their own personality and charm, so how do you keep that kind of small, independent shop feel? I, yeah, that's an interesting question, really. I think, I mean, we're lucky really to have got shops in lovely buildings. So we've got really interesting buildings. So every shop really has been treated differently. So whilst fundamentally you would probably walk into one of our stores and know it's a Vinegar Hill, they do all vary enormously. So the shop in Bath is this very high ceiling sort of um, Regency building. And then you go into Hitchin and it's much lower ceilings. It's got some old timbers in it. But there's there's a continuity of colour and, and the shop units are sa- the same. And obviously the product is the same. So you, you do have that thread that goes throughout the stores. And, and, and I think people really like the fact that you're not walking into a corporate store on the high street where everything is just identical. Yeah, it's just much more fun and enjoyable. And also the staff, I think, makes a huge difference because in an independent-owned store, it's just you get to know this, you know, if you're a local, you get to know the shop staff more and they care so much more about what they do. And well, do you know, and that's part of the pleasure for the people that work in the store, actually, that they have their regulars, and we do have a lot of regulars, and a, and a lot of people are even more aware of trying to support the high street now and the independents. And I think that we're very lucky. A lot of our store managers and a lot of our teams have been with us for a long time, and I'm, I'm hoping that that's because they enjoy working for the business. You know, we're still very much a family business because my brother has since joined us as well. And so we really do try and make it feel like a family still. And, and I think that if you get that passing on from, from your head office, as it were, down to your stores, and I mean, I go into some of our stores and they, they're a group of women, mostly women. We have a few guys, but mostly women. They've come together. They've never known each other before. And they become really, really strong friends and they form those friendship groups. And, and then they are a happy, happy team in their store. And, and it is really lovely to see. That's so good. I saw on your blog, you now do little interviews with your store managers and stuff. And it's so nice. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely, really lovely. And it's really interesting. Actually, I learned a few things on, on those um, interviews that I didn't know about. So, um, no, they are really good. And, and everybody's got something different to bring to the table. So, you know, and that's lovely. You just get lots of different personalities and you, you try not to be too corporate. While you have to have a, a degree of, of procedures and policies and things to follow, 
you do still want you know individuality within each store i think that's important otherwise you lose well you know then you might as well go to the regular big high street chains they have their place of course Uh, you know we all need food for example and you know that sort of thing absolutely how come you then added the fashion stores into it well funny enough that was from my brother's side of the business so he uh was in retail set totally separately and he had got a couple of fashion stores and uh, he decided we decided that actually we would like to try and join the the business together so Cheltenham was the opportunity because we took a very big store in Cheltenham a lovely very open mezzanine on the first floor and it was just a perfect opportunity to run fashion with lifestyle because most people enjoy the experience of shopping and if you can offer a mixture of fashion and homeware and, and giftware then it is just a lovely experience for people without going into a massive department store where perhaps the, 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 the shopping experience isn't the same, you have, have that, you know, you sort of kind of got, you've got, most of our customers are ladies, you've got, you've got them in your store anyway. So, um, and fashion accessories has become a huge department across all of our stores. And, and obviously it's just a lovely shopping experience. So you, you just tend to, to, to get people looking at both areas. Our Stratford store is a standalone fashion, and so is our Henley on Thames store. But the Henley on Thames store is directly next door to our lifestyle, so that works really well. Actually, we're hoping to knock through between the two stores in the next two or three months, so that will that will um, help help even more, really. But um, so my sister's just got involved with that fashion side of the business, and and she's just grown into that role. And 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 you know, you've really got to understand your trade with fashion and, and build up your supplier base. Yeah, because the buying is a bit different, isn't it? Very different. They buy very far in advance on a lot of product. Um, So that's always quite a big commitment. But more and more, we've dealt with short order brands. So people who can deliver you something, you know, within a week. Hmm. Your fashion offering always stays fresh and you can drop in new things throughout the season. Rather than buying at the beginning of the season and having it on your shop floor for five or six months, you can have lots of little new capsules dropping in and it just keeps your range you know interesting to the customer really yeah and i guess that's how you know society or shopping has changed we want that more instant gratification more new all the time so you almost absolutely it's hard to do that if you have to spend you know i know some of the bigger brands they say how much you're going to spend each season and you have to buy it quite far in advance and that that's maybe not that easy for for independent businesses well it's not i mean what a lot of the big brands in the fashion area that we took on yeah they would want you to make a sizable commitment uh, to their season so they felt you had a good offering in your store and you'd then be on a payment plan and you were committed so you know if that brand didn't work that season for you you were going to have a tough time of it because you've got you know you've got ranges dropping in across maybe five or six months so that as a business we just didn't want that and so whilst we do it with the very successful brands that we have we definitely pull back from others and as i say we focus much more on on short order which which has probably changed the fashion fashion business for us considerably i would say I think it's just so much. It's nice that there are more. Is do you think there's more short order brands out there now? Do you think it's something that is becoming more and more common? Or I think it is, as you say. I think the other big impact on fashion is the weather. So if you suddenly have this amazing heat wave, 
Hmm. So everybody wants to buy a dress or sleeveless tops and, and, and light floaty skirts. And if you didn't order enough of those based on perhaps what you sold last year, but you suddenly have a demand, you can go to those short order suppliers and get something literally within a day or two days. That's amazing. It changes your business. It just changes suddenly. You go into a weekend and you've got what people want for that weather. So I think it's, it, it, it's from, certainly from what I've learned from the fashion side of it, having those short order brands has been, has been a revolution, really. Yeah, and it works much more like gifting then in a way, because with gifting, you can sort of do that. You can jump on on the most popular product at the moment if you need to and you can change things quite easily yes absolutely you can get most of our suppliers i would say unless they've had a run on something very good most of our suppliers you can get you know within a week you can jump back on something and get it back into store and that you know you need to be reactive now as a retailer you you, you've got best sellers you need to get them quickly and uh, and if you've got slower sellers you probably need to clear them as quickly as you can but Certainly, I think access to stock is is vital. It's vital to the lifeblood of any any retailer. And how how does it work with you know? Because obviously you are in different parts of the country, different stores. Are the customers that shop there different? I would say yes, for sure. Um, I think it's interesting. I think when you've got a really great bestseller, then it's often a bestseller across everybody and that's just whether it's a trend or whether you've just got the right product in at the right time of the year but I would say something like a Shrewsbury is quite a rural customer quite provincial so they are perhaps drawn to slightly different products to say something like Bristol which is urban it's you know we get a lot of students in Bristol and um, so it definitely skews what you buy and um, and what's going to sell they I would say there are a few stores that are similar to each other but but they've all got their their little differences something like Stratford obviously gets a lot of visitors a lot of national as well as international visitors um, and they perhaps will be drawn to certain things uh, so it will skew it will skew your sales figures definitely you know we read almost daily about how the high street is struggling and what do you do to get people through the doors well i think we've probably seen i mean you know we've had our business now for over 21 years and from when i started you know you just opened your doors and you just gave lovely service and you had nice products and that was all you needed to do and now we live in a time where obviously internet sales are huge as you say people want instant instant uh, gratification with their shopping so they want it the next day or delivered within two days and I think it, it's, it, it has changed people's approach to shopping. And so I think from our perspective, I think that there is always going to be a future for the high street. But I think you have to work very hard at understanding what it is people want from the shopping experience, what makes them buy what they buy and, and not go, go home and think, right, I can get, I can, you know, I can get it, I can get this online. I think a lot of practical things people will buy online, but when they come into our stores where we we do focus very heavily on inspirational areas of the store and visual merchandising. People want into a look or a product. And maybe it's a little bit impulsive. So the classic is somebody coming in for a card or something quite small and then perhaps leaving, having bought a handbag or a scarf or something they didn't come in for because they are, you know, they're inspired by what they see. And I think you have to work very hard at, at, at what you're offering and how it looks. And and just making sure you've got product that's a little bit different on the high street. And how do you do that? Does each store do their own visual merchandising? 
No, we have, uh, we do have a visual merchandising team. So it's about three girls and they cover certain stores. So they would go once a week or every other week and support stores in launching new ranges. We implement a new window probably every six weeks, every four to six weeks. Um, obviously, Christmas is very intense because there's a lot of stock. There's a lot of turnover of product. Not everybody in stores has got the ability to visualize what you're trying to put together and how it works. So you do need those visual merchandising girls that I would say, you know, they're crucial to our business. Just so that each store, you have that same feel when you walk into a shop, even if they are all individual, you you have that kind of, I don't know, underlying connection, I guess, between them. I mean, you'll get the same product going into most of the stores, but each of the girls will perhaps interpret it slightly differently. So we'll agree a window and it might all look slightly different in each store and they all look lovely, but they are different. And and again, it's not so corporate. Each store then has its own personality effectively. Each store a little bit knows, you know, depending on what area that, that, that visual merchandiser work in, she knows a little bit more about the customer for that particular area i guess and of course they have access to your sales report so if things aren't performing then they maybe need to review where it is in store and if things are doing very well they keep them in a very prominent place to support the sales so there is also the allocation of how much space in store you give to certain products if they're not working or if they are working so they obviously have to be quite commercial as well as visual yeah, they almost yeah, that's true, and they will have the overview of why something because you can look at a sales report and see something works really well, but I guess they will know why it's working well because they will know where it is in store. And it's interesting you can have a very bizarre situation where everybody is selling something really well and maybe one store isn't, and you sort of say, right, where is it in the store? Do we move it? There's something, you know, there's a reason. And often it is where it's located or how it's displayed. So, um, you know, that that is really important. Yeah. Um, you had a rebrand earlier in the year and you did, redid your website. Is that also something that you've done in the stores? We are on a bit of a, a project, on a journey of, of rebranding and evolving the business. So what we perhaps started to do, what we, what our look was 20 years ago, obviously it has to evolve and you can't not rebrand yourself and not progress and, and look to perhaps updating. So we did have to look long and hard at the website and that is an area that we haven't really given a lot of focus to because we've always been about bricks and mortar but we recognize that that's an area that's going to grow and and is always going to be here with us so that is something we're focusing on and then we will start to look at the front the the faces of the of the shops and we will start to rebrand and and we've obviously got a new color a new logo so it will start to filter down into stores but of course it takes time and it takes lots of money, so you have to just have a program of, of starting to roll out what you're doing and, and, and just over what period of time. But I think it's really important for businesses to do that, to just look at what they have been doing, perhaps what they need to do to move forward. And so that from a customer's perspective, oh, you know, oh, they've had a, re- you know, it's, it's a rebrand, it's a refresh, great, exciting, you know, you're not... You're just not standing still. It's so important. And I think the new website looks good. You have a new travel edit. It's more inspirational and giving suggestions, I guess. 
Well, it is. And I think we recognize that people just don't want to be sold product anymore. And quite rightly so. They want to go onto somebody's website and perhaps have an article about something or read about something and not just be bombarded with, this is what we're selling. This is just coming. I mean, obviously, of course, that's what we're here to do to a degree. You are here to sell product, but you want to kind of communicate much more with your customer to, to interact with them much more. And I think, you know, that, that, that's probably what people want now. It isn't just people just don't want to be sold to all the time. No, I think the whole thing, we have technology that can do everything, but we still want that human connection. We want to know we're buying from an actual person to a certain degree, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, it's like, you you know, you get that personal interaction when you go into a store. How do you try and convey what you're offering in your store on your website and try and be personable? And that's partly why it's nice to have the managers being interviewed from various stores and to, you know, to, to, to move that on so that um, it is much more personal and, and people people do respond to that much more. Are you very active on Instagram and social media? Does that drive a lot of traffic to your website? Um, I think we are in the early, still in the early stages of the social media world. I mean, I come from a generation where we, we just didn't grow up with it. So we obviously need to look to people who are skilled in that area. You know, what, what makes people like an Instagram post? What makes people follow uh, specific people or companies and and I think we we recognize that probably we've still got work to do in that area but we are learning and we're evolving and we are trying to to, to improve that area of the business but I think I think social media and Instagram it is a very powerful um, media within our world and and you know you can't ignore it you you've got to you've got to get on board with it and you've got to be a part of it so um I think that's definitely an area where we're getting more involved with and we are trying to do much more with. It's a learning curve, isn't it? You know, when I started this business, I think I'm very naively didn't think a whole lot about it. I just decided to go for it. But, you know, social media, Instagram has obviously been a big thing for me. It's a good way for people to find me rather than traditionally working with a consultant of any sort. It, it was more word of mouth probably and you had your website but you would have to kind of approach people and sell yourself more whereas now there's social media. Well absolutely. Years ago you know you were always looking at marketing in the form of placing an ad somewhere or getting involved with you know obviously you know considerable cost to advertise and promote your business and now of course you, you know you've got people coming through the door they know you've got an Instagram and they know you've got a website and so you you but it's all about data capture you need people's details as a business be able to you know send emails out to them to be able to inform people about what you're doing let them know about events in store let them know when you're perhaps having a sale when you're launching christmas and all of those things and you know that is your biggest tool of communication with your customer effectively yeah and your mailing i i suppose your mailing list a lot of people i feel forget a little bit about having their mailing list but it's so important i think it still works a lot better than some other forms of marketing I, I think it's vital. I mean, I think we've just moved uh, IT, our IT till systems over to a new supplier. And, you know, one of the great options it, it offers you is a very quick and easy um, ability to put 
somebody's details on your database. And obviously, we don't bombard people and we certainly don't want to, you know, put people off with regard to that. But you want to let your customers know if you're doing an event in a store, if you're running something in an evening and, and you're doing a, a promotion or something like that. You, you know, you want people to know because that drives footfall to your stores or to your website. So you have to have people without that data, you know, you're struggling to communicate with people and to, and to increase the footfall to your, to your stores. So now you, when people come and pay, you can ask them for their email right away then. Which is normal now, isn't it? You go into yeah. most, of these, most of these businesses now, not all of them, but quite a few, they will just ask if you're on the mailing list and if not, they'll add you. And obviously now you have the facility to, to email a receipt to people so you don't print off a receipt. And so, you know, it, it, it's changed a lot in the last few years, really. Yeah, from having a till system with actual buttons like, yes. you know, pre- <laughs> You know, the one that made a ding when, you know, the t- the cash draw came out. Yes. yes, you're right. Those are the days. So how often do you sort of, um, launch something new in the shops? I would say that probably it's when we launch a new window. So when we do our buying for the season, we plan obviously around big occasions like Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas. I mean, there are some key events we we just have to tie into. Um, but I would say we launch a new window every six weeks, and that would be the implementation of new stock rolling out. So I think probably every six weeks. I think occasionally you might get something new dropping in, but we we try and plan it to assist the VM girls and to, to assist the in-store teams, really. And then really, for most regulars, they're coming in on a fairly regular basis. They are going to see new product and and, and new themes and stories going into the windows. And, and then they're reflected in store as well. Yeah, and how how far in advance do you decide on the themes? Is that when you have been to the trade shows and you know what's going to be available? How do you plan out not just the Father's Day and Mother's Day sort of ones? I mean, we probably have three really core cool suppliers and we go direct to their showrooms. We go to Germany and we go directly to their showrooms. So I literally, two weeks ago have come back from Holland and Germany where I was looking at spring 2020. So that then allows us to come back and obviously they need time to get to get everything made and to get your, your orders in production. So we'll confirm those orders probably within the mm. next two months. And that then is the foundation of what we want to do next year. And they're very good trendsetters. So you 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 look at perhaps what they're doing and there's it doesn't vary enormously, but there are often, you know, quirky, interesting things. And so you would select that as your foundation. And then when you go to the trade shows like Birmingham and London, you then know that you're going to perhaps look at product that will feed into what you've chosen as your base. So it kind of sets you up for that next year's spring. That's fun. So what sort of what sort of themes have you got now? What did you see? What's coming in the next year? For next I thought you were gonna ask me that and I'm thinking, oh can I remember? So for next year or for this autumn winter? Both I guess. <laughs> so well autumn winter we've probably got we do we we try and do Christmas I mean it's all obviously very much Christmas based. As August and September will be much more of a uh, a natural look, natural look for the home, simple living. Um, you know, you're in August, which is a really difficult time. People are on holiday. Your high summer stuff has really gone into the sales. So you're really wanting to, 
to, to start to go into the you are in the new autumn winter season, but you don't want to frighten people by going to, to autumn winter. So August is a bit transitional for us, and that will be a probably a home-based window about simple living, maybe a lot of wood, a lot of natural fabric. So just a nice, gentle move into a new season. And then obviously we start to ramp up with, with, with proper autumn, with lots of lovely homeware and soft furnishings. And we will probably do a Nordic Christmas. I think we've got a Nordic Christmas. We've got a very sort of Highland Christmas window. We've got a very girly window for some of the stores, quite a pretty pink rose, hellebore, Christmas rose window. So we try and do, we do try and tailor make Christmas a little bit mm. for each store because they will all have a different customer base. So we've got a boho Christmas for some stores. So that's always a really exciting time of the year. And, and we do try and really try and appeal to a lot of different tastes. Yeah, and Christmas is so fun. And I guess you can do those different windows for different locations because it's such a big time of the year. It is. And I, I think fundamentally, we do stay quite traditional. I think we've tried the odd wacky window. And, you know, you see the big stores like the Selfridges and they're doing amazing windows. But for us and our customer, it, most people will buy traditional because they're, they're adding to perhaps what they've already got or their interior is a fairly a specific look. So very, I would say, very small percentage of our customers will really buy anything that's completely wacky. So we do have, we try and have a twist on Christmas, but we always do a little bit of, of traditional Christmas, always. Yeah, I kind of want to still see, I, maybe I'm traditional, I kind of want to see a shop window and see something I like and know that that's actually going to be in the store. It's not just, you know, a fancy window. As much as I love the big yes. department stores, windows, you know, Selfridges and Harrods, yes. they're great to look at, but they don't really entice me to buy anything, I guess. No, they're more of a, of a, of a showpiece, aren't they? I think, I mean, we did do a, we used to deal with a supply for Christmas um, from Belgium and they were really wacky, wacky. Uh, they were great fun. And, but, and they used to stop people in their tracks, but you then got to look at the conversion of that. So do you see your window as a marketing tool? And that's what gets people through your door. Or do you want to have your window full of product that people come in and say, oh my gosh, I want that. So last year, I think we did an ice rink and that was the last window of the year. We literally created this rink that looked like ice with a wooden fence around it and, and skiing polar bears and people, skating polar bears, sorry, and people love that window. There wasn't massive to buy in it, but people loved it. You know, children and families would stop and stare and, and you, you kind of want to have that magic of Christmas. That is magic. That's great. It was a great window. Really, really effective. I guess there's also times in the year that that works more effectively and maybe for a store, you know, stores like yours, that is for Christmas, whereas in the summer, maybe that's not what, what people want. No, you, you would only do that at Christmas and, and if you're honest, as a retailer you don't want your window full of product that you're trying to sell so you perhaps want a window because if you've got too much lovely product in your window people want to buy it and you'll, you'll start to decimate your window people will dive in and pull stuff out so you try and do a last window which doesn't have masses of very saleable uh, product yeah i have never thought about that yeah yeah so um what we've learned we've obviously learned that lesson ourselves but um but i think the rest of the year absolutely you want product in there that people look and go yeah i love that cushion i love that chair and table and you know and and, and you, you, you you do entice people to come in and and have a look so 
yeah, I think on the whole, your windows need, do need to reflect what you've got in store. Yeah. And we touched already that you source products, you have your main suppliers, and then you go to trade shows to find things to slot in. How else do you find new products? So we started to, I have been out with my sister-in-law to India. So we've started to do a little bit of our own brand from India. They are very good um, for soft furnishings with jewellery and paper products and uh, table linen. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Obviously, it's challenging. Quantities are much higher, but your margins are very good. You have your own label on it. So it's a Vinegar Hill product. So there is no one else selling it in the country because it's it's exclusive to you. And I think that, that probably for our business... Hmm. That is the way that we want to go to a degree. It won't be everything, but I think it, it, it's a very important part of our business now. I think as a retailer, there's a lot of frustration with suppliers uh, supplying people on your doorstep, maybe two people in the same town having the same product, customers coming in and they've seen that product somewhere else in town. And, you know, that that's not great. And that's not what we want to really be a part of. We want to be a shop that's exclusive. And and people realize, oh, I actually can't get this. I can't scan the barcode and get it on Amazon or online else. I can only get it from Vinegar Hill. And I guess that's a problem too, because before when you had one or two stores, maybe you can combat that by buying from more local makers and have a few smaller suppliers like that, that would, would honor, you know, stay loyal and all that. But when you have 11 of them, you need a certain level of stock, I guess. You do. And, and whilst, uh, don't don't get me wrong a lot of suppliers are very good they will support you if you're in that town they won't supply anybody else but of course our frustration comes if you want to open a store in a town where perhaps there is a crossover likewise that supplier might not give you that product because they've already got something in that town so it works for you it works against you and I think it's always a challenge that that retailers if we're not careful are, are crossing over and, and you know we've seen that in our Cheltenham store you know John Lewis has opened in Cheltenham they carry a lot of what we carry and it's going to have an impact. And I think if you can move away from that and try and offer something that is your design and your product and you're not going to get it in John Lewis, uh, then, you know, that 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 is what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think coming from the sales side of that, it's always so tricky because you obviously want to nurture those relationships that you've built with buyers. But when someone multi you know, with multiple stores comes and approach you, you you also have your sales targets to reach. So it's such a conflict sometimes. Yes, huge conflict. And it's so many times that I've had discussions with, you know, the team, one person wants to get that sale and the person that looks after the little store down the same street is like, but we've been dealing with them for, you know, 15 years. And it's such a pull and it's it's often, I think, now more than often than not the the sort of order size wins i guess i think yes i mean i think as well i think probably a little bit of frustration is that we deal with some good suppliers of ours but they sell online themselves mm. and then sell to people who are online businesses only who where their overheads are not not the same as having a bricks and mortar shop on the high street so perhaps they reduce their margin they reduce the product accordingly and so We've made the investment in a bricks and mortar store with all the overheads that come with it, all the staffing and all the costs that are involved. We can't compete with somebody who perhaps wants to work out of a 
you know, an office at home or, or that converted garage at home and just sell online. And so you need your suppliers absolutely to support the bricks and mortar people and, um, and where they can control a degree of pricing so that you're not being undercut. Because mm. they're very savvy when they shop now and they will photograph a product or scan a barcode and, and try and get it, get it somewhere else. And I think th- those are the challenges we face now that we never had, you know, maybe 10 years ago. No, that you would just go in. You loved something. If you didn't have the money, you'd come back the next week and buy it. Or you put it on lay-by and say, look, I'm coming back in next week when it's payday. And you, you did all of that. But now, yeah, it, it, we, you know, we do live in very different times. Yeah, I haven't put anything behind the counter for years. <laughs> we still get that. People still do that, but uh, not like, I don't think it, not like No, no uh, that's, that's a completely different time. Mm, totally. So if you have a smaller uh, business and a smaller brand, how can they, you be noticed? You know, do you look at smaller brands when you walk at the trade shows? Do you get a lot of people contacting you outside of the show? and does that work for you guys or it it partly does I don't think we pick up a lot of new suppliers from people emailing I think that I would say we find the majority of our suppliers at trade shows or it's something that I've seen somewhere and then I've contacted them perhaps because I've loved it but I think we we actively would love to support smaller businesses but the product's got to be right for us and the price point's got to be right and very often I'll go to some of these shows and I see gorgeous product but you know, perhaps it's very labor intensive to make and, and it almost becomes a gallery piece. It, it doesn't, it's not something that we're going to do perhaps enough volume on. We're not the sort of business that, you know, we, we can't, mm. we're not going to sustain our business if we're just selling one or two of something. You know, you've got to get something in and be able to sell a reasonable quantity of it. I mean, I suppose jewelry is a classic case. You know, we have cabinet jewelry. It's a higher price point. You don't sell it every day, but it's nice to have and people, you know, love to buy things like that. But it's not going to be your volume business. And I think that that's always the challenge. You know, I'm drawn towards wanting to have really interesting, quirky suppliers. and But I think sometimes they get lost in our stores and people don't appreciate the work that's gone into them, behind them. And we are actively trying to work in-store doing more um, point of sales. So if we've got really interesting product, we'll have a little printed up a um, piece of literature about it, about, you know, where it was made and a little bit of a story about it. And people do really appreciate information about a product. But I think it's such a fine line between wanting to go to a small supplier and it also being commercial. Yeah, I suppose you can with the cabinet jewellery. At least it doesn't take a lot of space. Exactly. <laughs> so you can do be a little bit more... You have a bit more room to play, I guess, with that. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, when it comes to ceramics, you know, we buy a lot of lovely ceramics from Portugal and, you know, they're great price points. And and you then can't go and look at somebody with a hand-thrown pot or something that's got a lot of labour involved. Mm. It wouldn't be right for our store because we're we're not at that level on, on the high street, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, but that makes sense. It's it, and, and you know, lead times is also often a challenge. So whereas you know, because if you're buying a bit more volume than the smaller supplier is used to, then to for them to replenish their their stock might take a while if they if it takes them a while to make. 
Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong, we do. We've got a couple of suppliers who um very much on the sustainable side that we do business with. And one lady, um, she supplies us with um, rather than using the flat cotton wool wipes to take your makeup off, she uses the leftovers from um, her organic cotton clothing business. She's got a, a, a children's clothing business. So she has these lovely soft organic cotton pads. Uh, she makes them out of the leftovers from the clothing. And I mean, bless her, I think she literally had to shut down her phone and everything for three days while she made orders for us. And of course, it was several hundred of them because we were taking them across all stores. <laughs> yeah. Credit to her. We didn't. We didn't have to wait long, and she's she's always fulfilled orders moving forward. And and they want to grow their business, but they and it is a difficult. I do understand that you you have these growing pains of a small business where you maybe haven't got the manpower or the resource to fulfill these big orders. But if you can't do it, you're going to put a ceiling on what you can and can't do, and and that that's frustrating for everybody, really. You know, but but we've had those in, and they're great. And um, and and from our perspective, we need to deal with a you know literally a one man business. You know, that's lovely. What's her brand? Her brand is Lovesy and Mo. So I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, Lovesy and Mo. And uh, I, I can't remember where she's based, but is uh, she? As I say, her, I think her business is organic cotton clothing for children. And then as a sideline, she's made these reusable, obviously sustainable um, makeup removers. So fantastic. That's such a good idea. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's it's taking care of your waste somehow. Yes, absolutely. I, I think all these little things, I, I you know, even if sustainability is not your core thing in your product, I think it has to be part of each business nowadays. People want that. Absolutely. And we are absolutely committed now moving forward to two two aspects of the business, really. One is we now only stock and sell reusable straws, drinking straws. We obviously sell the lovely beeswax food wraps, so uh, that avoids the, um, the use of cling film. Uh, we are actively trying to source and sell products that are sustainable and environmentally friendly. And we are open to anything that, that, that will fit in with our business that, that is a positive thing for the environment and the customer. And obviously, the, the flip side of that is we are talking to a lot of our suppliers now about how they package their product. You know, we don't want these great levels of plastic and polystyrene. Mm. I do think whilst we're in the early days of all of this, I think everybody in business has got to start considering how they put, how they wrap their goods their use of plastic and, and, and the long-term impact of that. I've actually contacted suppliers because I've been horrified about either how much packaging or how much plastic has been used round orders that go out to stores. I, you know, there's got to be a, another way. Yeah, and how much air they ship sometimes I really bothers me. Person, yeah. You know, when you order something from an online retailer and you get a huge box for a tiny thing and you think, yes. you know, it could have taken up no place, no room at all in the van that had to transport that. And it is, it is. I think, you know, I, so I think... As, a, as certainly from our perspective, whilst, you know, gosh, we are nowhere near there yet, we are really, really mindful now of trying to make changes to our business and to, to, to have a, a reasonable offering to people 
of environmentally, you know, friendly and sustainable products. Do you find that more and more of your card suppliers are switching to supplying their cards naked? Uh, Not yet, but I think it's coming. I met with somebody recently because some of them already use compostable covers on the cards. So at the moment in our business, we don't, I don't think we have any cards that are not wrapped and protected. And obviously it's a concern if they're not protected, that they're going to get damaged and soiled. And, and they're going to lose their envelope and it becomes a really high maintenance area for us. But so I think, I think again, it's a conversation we have with everyone. You know, what are you doing? How can we overcome this, this wrap, wrapping that goes around every single card? And, and if we have to sell them without them, then we will. Of course we will. But a lot of people are doing it yet. But I, I think it's going to happen. I think perhaps in the next couple of years, there's going to be some significant changes. I think so. And I think it also depends on the card. I was talking to someone else about this. If they have a lot of hand finishes, there's, you know, there will be a lot of damages. If you are hand applying beads or glitter or something, they kind of, yes. I suppose, need some sort of protection maybe. But whereas the more plain card, are maybe a bit different and I guess yeah. the compostable bags have got better too because now some of them you can put in your home compost yes absolutely but also bearing in mind now one or two big retailers are not carrying anything with glitter on because if it's not recyclable oh glitter, yeah and you know what that's another question and I think we're I mean we're really mindful now of some of the children's products we take if, if it's if it's stuff that you look at and you think do you know what this is just going to end up in landfill then we're not going to take it anymore and and all those novelty things whilst there's a place in the market for them especially at certain times of the year you've got to look at that product and make a decision you know what can we find an alternative that's that's maybe you know more sustainable or not not made from loads of plastic that's that you know is going to end up in landfill it's good all we can do is try to introduce better alternatives we talked a little bit about margin what what is the sort of base margin that you need as a retailer? Because I, I think probably we need a base margin, a gross margin of about 50%. Um, I mean, that will vary. There are, of course, areas of the business where you can't get that furniture for one and, and very much higher price point. But then perhaps less expensive items that maybe you do lots of volume on, you can get a greater margin. So it does vary a little bit as to what you're selling. And what you think it's going to retail for. Some of the fast turning things like cards, you can get a lot higher margin sometimes. And and I guess how it's made and where you're buying it from, the country you're buying it from makes a huge impact, I think. Of course it does. And people, if they if they pick up something that's been mass produced in China or somewhere, then they're not, you know, there's, there's going to be a ceiling for that price point. But if you are looking at something which has been handmade, especially in, in the UK or in Europe, and you know, you're paying, you know, for, for the quality, what it's made of, the design behind it, then I think, you know, a discerning customer will, will understand what, you know, that the price point is going to reflect that. And what makes a, a supplier a good supplier? How do they build a long rest, lasting relationship with you guys? I think it's, it's probably not just one thing. I think what makes a good supplier to me, I think good levels of communication. So good responses to any queries you've got. I think when you place an order with a supplier, there are certain things you need back from them and you need all the relevant information for your EPOS system. So it's nice to have that back in good time and and as you requested it so you're not chasing up people 
Um, I think suppliers that offer you obviously good terms and conditions on, on your account, that, that, that's a consideration for us. They support you in your location so that they're not going to be supplying other people perhaps on your doorstep. They stay in regular contact with you. They try and support you in deliveries that are carriage paid without being crazy, crazy values because the, one of our biggest frustrations probably is that you do an order with a supplier and then there are certain things you want to reorder because they've done really well, but then it's not a carriage paid order and so they won't just deliver that to your store. So, uh, I mean, we're fortunate we can take it centrally and then we, we, we distribute it ourselves. But I think, I think supplies that understand what's going on on the high street and, uh, you know, the challenges for the retailer, I think they, they need to be aware of all of those things. And, and you need to be in a good working partnership with each other. You know, we are very loyal to the suppliers that support us. If the quality is good, if the product that we're buying, if the designs are interesting, and, and obviously, you know, personalities, you can get on with people. I think, you know, you are entering into a good working relationship, hopefully, with people. So um, I think it's a lot of different aspects that, that you need to come together to, to make it successful. It is like any relationship, I think. It takes work. Yes, it does. It really does. And I think, and there are perhaps some people where they, you know, they, you, you're frustrated with them a little bit because maybe they don't respond to you in, in a reasonable amount of time or, you know, they, they, they get the deliverance wrong and it causes us to then have to sort it all out. And I mean, most supplies are pretty good, but we, we do get the odd shocker. And it, it, I just think for us, uh, uh, the level of business we do, we just can't have those frustrations happening too often because it just creates work in store and work in, in our accounts department. And, you know, it just has a huge knock-on effect, really. Yeah, it, it really does. I remember when I was buying books for paper style, mm. you know, when you don't get a reply. <laughs> if you're asking, do you have 2,000 of these in stock for this customer and you don't hear back and you have to phone them five times, it's just the most frustrating thing it's like i want to give you my money but <laughs> what more do i have to do <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, that's crazy and 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 i think you do see that and it's training within their businesses isn't it how their staff answer the phone how quickly are responding i mean and also how they package things and label things everything that you know if things are barcoded that's a massive help for us they just do need to understand what multiple retailers need. And it, then it makes everything so much smoother for us. I think we, we have to continue to learn from each other and help each other. And that's the only way the high street yeah. can sort of stay an enjoyable place. Finally, can you tell us a brand that you think deserves a shout out, a retailer that you think is getting it right and... Whatever product find you found that is going to be, you think is going to be a big for them? I think, I mean, we're in the early stages of our autumn buying because we obviously go to Harrogate in a week's time and that will form a lot of our buying for autumn. So I'm excited for that. I'm looking forward to seeing, I'm going with a slightly different head on this time. So again, talking about the whole environmental product and, and sustainable products, I'm very much mindful of that now. So I'm looking forward to the trade shows moving forward. We 
do stock a great small business called BB Wraps, and those are the lovely beeswax wraps that we've done incredibly well with, which are the alternative to cling film. So that's had a great response from customers. I think other retailers, that's a tricky one, really. I am really excited to see that Waitrose in Oxford are trying to massively cut down their plastic, and they are now rolling out a program of coming and filling up your containers. So I take heart from that. I was in Waitrose in Stratford this morning, funny enough, and I was aghast at, you know, things that I wanted to buy that were in plastic. And I I just, having watched this war on plastic on the BBC recently, it's really opened my eyes to the challenges that we've got. And I think supermarkets have got to take the lead with it. So I'm really heartened to see that somebody is starting to do something change people's approach to to how we shop yes I love that yeah I think that that's the challenge at the moment I think anybody that offers that there's one that there is a business that does that not far from here but it is pricey and and I think for a lot of people that's just not going to work so I think they have got to really understand how they can can drive the volume of product they need to sell but not have it all wrapped in plastic and you know, there's got to be there's got to be a way to do it. They've just got to start making those inroads, haven't they? I I I'm so behind that. I really want them to start doing that in my you know where I live. I can go to Whole Foods and get things, but it's quite pricey. Surely our apples and oranges and and potatoes. Yeah, they don't have to come in plastic. They didn't used to. They don't have to be in plastic. You always bought potatoes loose. I mean, I went. To, I was looking at asparagus this morning. And that's normally just got a paper band around it. And it was in a plastic bag. And I was like, oh. So I, I think, you know, they've just gone the other way with plastic, haven't they now? It's- Everything is plastic, packed in packs. And uh, n- not just the small supermarkets, they used to do it because that's the convenience store sort of stuff. But they're big ones too. And it's just very frustrating. Well, I also was heartened to see in Waitrose that they're offering, I know I'm doing a bit of a shout out for Waitrose, but now when you buy loose fruit and veg, the bag that you put it in is now compostable. I would buy everything loose and just put it in the trolley and I wouldn't take a plastic bag now you can use a compostable bag. So I thought, well done, that's a result, isn't it? That's brilliant. And I read about Boots the other day, they're moving to paper bags instead of plastic bags in, I think, 50-something store this now and then launching, rolling out across all the 2,000-plus stores next year. And that's going to save 900 tonnes of plastic. Wow. Well, I think there was an ad in the store this morning that said, oh, how many millions of plastic bags, something like 90 million plastic bags have been saved going into the environment because they don't even offer a 5p plastic bag in Waitrose anymore. So you've got no option but to bring your own bag. And you know, I think people understand that and they will they will adapt their lifestyle. I mean, we all go to the supermarket now with our reusable shopping bag, don't we? Yeah, and if I forget it, I buy a new reusable one yes. because I feel bad otherwise. <laughs> So I think I think there's you know there's some exciting times ahead. I think there's lots of challenges, but I think certainly from a retail perspective, you know, it's um, 
it's always looking forward to, to, to what we can do. And certainly the environment is, is very much on our radar. That makes me excited about retail, that there is these new ways and new products and new ways of doing things. Yeah. So I think that's all the questions I have for you today. Would you like to tell us where listeners can find you guys and how they can connect with you? The website is www.vinegarhill.co.uk and uh, we obviously have an Instagram, which is vinegarhill. Uh, and I think all of the all of the store information and our head office information will be on our website. And um, and people are welcome to contact me. Uh, my name is Beth, and uh, I'd certainly send something onto info at Vinegar Hill, and it will be forwarded to me. So if you have that sustainable angle and you can do the margins and you can have enough of a you know get make enough products then do that contact me contact me i'll look forward to hearing from you thank you so much i really enjoyed chatting today thank you so much for giving up so much of your time it's a pleasure i've really enjoyed it Therese. it's been really really lovely thank you thank you so much beth for taking the time and sharing your experience with us If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you could also rate and review this podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. I'll be back again next Monday with my first in-person interview, which I'm both excited and nervous about. Until then, have a fabulous week and I hope to see you again next Monday.